Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, as has been said, happy birthday. It's also happy anniversary. And I say that because it's a, there's a sense in which uh, the birthday is when the church began, but anniversaries mark how long we have been together. And for some of us, it has been 18 years. And for others, it has been 18 days. And this is one of the great beauties of having been a part of this community for all of these years. We get to see where the relationships were and where they're going, and we get to see even into the future with our own little sort of advent that says, oh my goodness, this is, the, this is what God is doing here in our midst and for us. And so I, um, I was thinking back at the, to the very beginning uh, days of the church, and uh, we had actually had already started having some services, and uh, we, were, we were calling them preview services, and they were at a hotel what is now La Quinta, over on Stewart Ave. And we were meeting in the meeting room there. And uh, it, was, uh, it was great. We had, you know, 20 or 30 people eventually. We had been building a core of people. There was, you know, it was me and Cheryl. And then uh, it was Conrad and Kelly. Those were the first uh, two that actually said, yep, we're in. Uh, and then, you know, I think Lois was one of the very early ones, if, if you've met Lois. And there were a handful of others that were, were just saying, yeah, I want to be a part of this new thing. And we were largely, we were meeting at our apartment over in uh, Carl Place. And uh, our classes and stuff like that was all in our basement. But this day marks the day that we started public services in our own building 18 years ago. And so that building was actually the East Williston Baptist Church. We had called them and said, hey, guys, we're a new up-and-coming church. We're looking for a place to meet, not on Sundays, because we know you guys have a church there on Sundays, but we want to meet midweek, and we want to have some classes there, and so we can, we've out, we're outgrowing our basement. And, um, and they said, well, no, actually, Dan Carrazzo, I don't know if Dan's here yet, but Dan, he, he said he was at the East Williston Baptist Church, as was the Ram Dannys and uh, a few others who were still there. Oh, there's, there you go, the Ram Dannys, they were there. The whole youth ministry, uh, the kids' ministry at that time consisted of uh, Joe and Ann teaching their own kids, and I think like one or two other kids or something like that. And uh, they said, hey guys, why don't we join forces as a church? Why don't, you know, we have a building and we have, we have our 20, 30 people, and you have 20 or 30 people and no building. Uh, but you have leadership and drive and vision and what you know where you're going, and we don't. We're in decline, and you guys are up and coming, and let, this seems like a match made in heaven. And we were like, this seems like a match made in hell. Uh, you're not going to like us. You're not going to like anything about us. You're not going to like our music. This isn't something we want to do. Um, ended up, uh, I'll, I'll tell you all the whole story one time, but uh, ended up going, it ended up working. It ended up happening. And uh, those two congregations came together despite all of the, the challenges and the differences in culture, and we came together in order to build the kingdom here in Nassau County. And we found some dear, dear friends uh, that are still with us uh, all of these years later. But one of the very first days, this is just about a week or so, uh, a few weeks, I should say, before 
uh, the first opening service that we were going to have, we uh, gathered up the whole of this new joined congregation, and I said, hey guys, because you know, I'm, I'm 18 years younger, so go back in time, put me back uh, a much younger, uh, hopefully, um, you know, still very wise pastor 18 years ago, and uh, I said, I noticed that the hymnals in the church had been dedicated to people, and some of those people who had dedicated them were still alive. They were actually still in the congregation, and they had dedicated them in honor of, like, people they loved, like people that were no longer with us. That seemed pretty sentimental to me. You know, I'm not the sharpest emotionally intelligent person in the room, but I, I was like, that seems important. So I, uh, I asked uh, the whole of the group, I said, hey guys, um, I, I want to encourage you that have donated these, some of these hymnals. You might want to take the ones that you've donated in, in honor of someone. You might want to keep them as a, like as a keepsake. So feel free to take one or all of the ones that you've donated in honor of people here, you know, in the church or in the history of the church. And uh, I thought it was pretty self-explanatory. Just take your hymnals and go. And, uh, and so um, one of the, the ladies, I, I see these looks of confusion. And one of the, the older ladies there, she says, but why would we take, take the hymnals? And then it dawned on me, what, 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 I, what, I, what I should have thought and, and wondered was, well, maybe they're wondering why we won't need hymnals next week. And of course, the reason we won't need hymnals is because we're not going to be singing most of those hymns, and we're going to be installing a projector and a screen, and we won't need these old dated paper books. But I didn't, I didn't even think that level of sensitivity. Instead, I said, well, you should take them home because there won't be a place to put them next week. And they said, the lady said, she would, now there was confused looks everywhere, and I'm confused now. Like, I don't even understand what we're talking about. And so, and so one of the, the same lady, she says, what do you mean there won't be a place to put them? We put them in the back of the pews. I said, oh, because the pews are leaving this week. And there were audible gasps. And then there were tears. And one woman, she started bursting out in tears, and she started crying. And I see their group all like, what in the world is going on? And who's making our, our people cry? And who is this guy? And what have we done? And I see our church, our, our, like the, the people that were with us originally all sta staring forward. <laughs> like, oh boy, here we go. And, and then I heard Conrad audibly above the, the weeping and crying. He says, oh boy. <laughs> and, and I was like, all right. Okay, we got to back up a little bit here and try to figure out everything that just went wrong with all of you people, because I wasn't yet ready to see that it was all my, my mistake and how I brought all of that in. 18 years ago, we're ripping out pews, we're changing music styles, we're changing the way we look on a Sunday morning, getting rid of formality and bringing in informality, putting bagels in, you know, and food in the sanctuary, because there was no other room in that building to do anything other than that. All of these changes caused so much grief, so much heartache, so much trouble, and surely could have been done a whole lot of better ways. But why? Because we knew from the very start, when there were four of us and six of us and eight of us praying, that the kingdom of God matters, that the hope of the world is in Jesus Christ, that he needs to, to 
to expand his realm here, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, and that he's entrusted that to us. And no matter what, we are going to do that. And we may stumble along the way. We may make some mistakes along the way. We may even hurt some people and step on some toes and do some things that we didn't even intend in ways. But the, but the heart that was there that day, hopefully now uh, sophisticated with a little bit more experience and a, and, and a little bit more wisdom, but, but, but that same heart is with us now. It is not growing cold. It isn't even close to growing cold. In fact, in many ways, it is being reignited and re-inflamed in us here at Beacon. It is an increasing desire to do the work of the kingdom in ever more effective and ever more powerful and ever more expansive ways. Because lost people matter to God and they ought to matter to us. They ought to matter to us. And we ought to be able to shed everything that hinders the expansion of the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ is offering the gift of eternity, of, a, of an invitation back home to Eden. In a new heaven and in a new earth. This is the promise that we, that we embraced, that we grabbed that day, and that we have stumbled through all of these years in our best efforts to try to do more and more. And that we have invited more and more people into. It's what you've been invited into. It's why we do what we do. You want to know what's coming up in the, in the future? You want to know what the next year is going to hold? It's going to hold a whole lot more of that. We're redoubling our efforts as a congregation to put lost people as the central focus of every one of our ministries. What are we doing? To reach people with the life-saving message of Jesus. What are we doing? Let's redouble our efforts to reach, teach, connect, mentor, encourage the next generation. When we're dead, they're going to still be here doing the work of the kingdom. How do we resource them now to do that work? How do we grow them up into full maturity of faith? Let's redouble our efforts as a congregation toward that end. What will we do? How will we take all that God has given to us and take the, the beauty of that message and fold as many diverse, even hostile people, ideas, visions about what this is. How do we fold more and more of them into a community? A community that we get to participate in as we grow in Christ. What would it be like to fold more and more people into a community like that? This is what we as a congregation have been about from the very, very beginning, and it is what we will continue to do. Press in, press harder, work toward, stumble along even if it means reaching more and more people for the kingdom. Now, I'll make a quick comment. I don't talk a whole lot about uh, money, but uh, I think I've got, we, get, we have the Illuminate campaign coming on here. And I want to mention this because there's a little shift. I don't, again, I don't talk about money much. The gist of, of my whole idea about money, it's one of the reasons I don't talk about it is because it feels, it feels pretty straightforward and repetitive. 
is uh, we practice the tithe, which is 10% of the income. We, we personally have practiced that as a family, and we also believe that is kind of the basic of the Christian faith. And so 10% of your income goes to the church in order to expand the ministries and do all of the work. And Chris Bell just mentioned that, so I don't want to belabor uh, that part of it. And so, but, but here's the thing. All of that, all of the resources that we have collected as a church, we pour back into the kingdom work. But what's happening in the next few years, we hope, or what, what is that kind of one of my big desires for us as a congregation is that we as a church will actually increasingly get to tithe, that we will work to it. Sometimes when people are new to the faith and they say, you know, I don't know about this tithing thing, 10%, I don't know how I could even live on it. And we go, work toward a tithe, just like you would in every other area of spiritual discipline. Work toward it. If this year you're 1%, then work to 2% next year. If you're at 5%, work to 6%. This is just... Basically, this is, how, this is how we've done it in our own life, and it's how we feel God has honored and blessed it. And it's in, it's, anything short of it feels like disobedience. Anything above and beyond it feels like what Christians ought to be working toward. And so it's, it feels very straightforward to me. But what if, a, as a congregation, we also were able to tithe? And so this year, we dedicated, with the uh, guidance of the ministry leadership team, we dedicated 5% of whatever we take in toward outflowing ministries toward care for the community, toward local and foreign missions, toward developing relationships with all of the, the smaller parachurch missions organizations that are here at the church. So this year, we're at 5%. And each year, we hope to increase that percent until we as a congregation tithe, which means every, every dollar that you would contribute, a dime goes toward one of these outflowing kinds of, of missions any sort of local foreign missions that we are doing. For every $100 that you give, $10 will ultimately go toward these outflowing missions. For every $100,000, $10,000 is going to go out. For every million, $100,000 will flow out toward these local foreign missions. It's one of these things that as we have continued to grow as a congregation, now we get to participate not just in our own efforts here to do that work of the kingdom, but now we get to partner with and, and resource and support church plants and foreign missions and local missions and Long Island youth-focused missions, and, and we get to do all of that because of what God has blessed us with. And that's partly how you participate. You do the work. You support the work. You, you, you supply the resources for the work. And this is why together we get to celebrate our anniversary of how many years that God has been doing this with us together. And so maybe this is your first ornament. And maybe it's the beginning of your whole collection of ornaments. Maybe you already have more than a dozen on your tree. God has knit us together for such a time as this. He has done this thing here in our midst so that we together can continue to expand the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. So that is my hope and my dream. And as we kind of kick off here our Advent series, I want to just give a reflection for us here this morning. Uh, and uh, Advent's one of these funny things because it begins with the birth of Christ, but it actually, you could say, begins much earlier than that because the prophets are what created the anticipation. And so... There's a story told by a, uh, a father. He's in Spokane, Washington, and his name's David Peterson, I think. And uh, he said that one day he was working on a project, very, very tight deadline. And uh, his daughter came in and said, hey, Dad, uh, can we play? 
And the dad was like, oh, sweetie, I'm really sorry, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm really against the deadline here. Like, give me an hour, maybe two hours, and then, I'm, and then we'll go play. I was like, oh, that's, you know, it'd be great to be go now, but like, he, get, he has to do his work, got to get it done. Sweet story. But uh, the daughter, she says, okay, daddy, in an hour or two, I'll come back and we'll play. And she says, when, when I come back, though, when you finish your work, I am going to give you the biggest, biggest hug. And the dad was like, oh, sweetie, that is so sweet. That is so encouraging. And she walks over to the door. And then she stops cold. She makes a U-turn. She walks right back up to him, and she gives him a big bear hug. And the dad was like, sweetie, that's so sweet. But, like, I, I thought you said you were going to give me the hug after I finished my work. And she says, yes, but that's so you know what you have to look forward to. That's Advent. It's what we have to look forward to. It's the hug that we first got from the Son of God. Advent begins with the birth of Jesus, you could say, but hundreds of years earlier, the prophets had crashed on the scene and started telling us about the one who was to come. This was their first movement toward us with open arms. That would be the hug that Jesus gives us in anticipation of what was yet to come after that. Now, the background to one of these prophets is important for us. It's, it starts here in the Mediterranean. You recognize it because of Italy. And, of course, we all know this area now because there's like a war here and a war here, uh, which, by the way, there's always war here. Uh, ever, you know, in the Bible, it's just war all over the place here. And so... And so if you zoom in a little bit to Israel, Israel was at first a united kingdom here after they had left Egypt out of slavery, and there was one nation, but eventually they fell into civil war. It actually was King David, then Solomon. This is where they hit the peak of their empire, and then all of a sudden there was civil war, and they, they broke out after Solomon into these two different, and the northern tribes were called Israel, the southern tribes were called Judah, and here in Judah was Jerusalem the holy city. And inside Jerusalem was the temple, the temple that Solomon had built. The temple was the hope of all of the Jewish people because that's where you found salvation. And this was the holy city. This was Zion. This was the, the city on a hill. This was the whole promise of all of the scriptures up until this point where Abraham was told that he, would, that he and his descendants would be a blessing to all of the nations. This was how it was going to happen. It was going to be a holy city filled with justice, filled with righteousness. And in the middle of that city was this unbelievable temple, a wonder of the world architecturally, incredible uh, beauty and majesty in this, in this temple. And it's where inside the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, where God met with his people and where you would sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins would, would be obtained there in that temple. And so you could think of this as the center of all political and religious life, but even more so than that, it was, the, it was the lifeblood of the hope of the world. This is not a small thing because then eventually we ended up with a foreign power. The Assyrians came in and they destroyed the northern kingdoms and they deported the people, the diaspora. They, they spread them out over the whole of the kingdom at the time. That was the northern kingdom. And of course, the southern kingdom would have looked at that and they would have said, well, that's because you don't have Jerusalem. You don't have the temple. You guys were sinners. And, and, but we, we have what really matters. We have the king that comes from King David, Zedekiah. He's actually a descendant of King David. 
And we have, of course, the temple itself. And then all of a sudden, another power arises, Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar presses in around Jerusalem. But in order to prevent the destruction, they become a vassal state of Babylon. They start paying. They, Babylon comes in, deports all of their top people, all their artisans, all their top political thinkers, all their warrior-type folks. They deport them all and start using them for the expansion of Babylon under this incredibly powerful and wicked Nebuchadnezzar. But the city still stands and the temple still stands. So that means something, especially to those who were left behind. And of course, they still have their king, King David. Now, Jeremiah is asked by God to go into this time in history with all of this kind of pressure and to tell them the bad news. Because if this wasn't bad enough, and the bad news was Nebuchadnezzar is on his way and he's going to destroy the city and the temple. No, 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 no. That can't happen. Imagine, that would be like not only in America, all of our great cities being destroyed by some freedom-hating tyrant. It would be like rolling back all of the progress that America has helped fuel in the world. And so, uh, you know, women's suffrage and, and abolition of slavery and, and, and Bill of Rights kinds of things. It would be like the unraveling of all of those things all at one massive, powerful, final stroke. There's no way Jerusalem and the holy city and, and the temple can fall. And Jeremiah says, yeah, it is going to fall. It is going to fall. And then he goes on to explain to them why it was going to fall. And this is what the, this is the heartache of their situation. He says, this is in Jeremiah 22. He says, he says, go over and speak directly to the king of Judah. Say to him, listen to this message from the Lord, you king of Judah, sitting on David's throne. Let your attendants and your people listen too. This is what the Lord says. Be fair-minded and just. Do what is right. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue from them from their oppressors. Quit your evil deeds. Do not mistreat foreigners, orphans, and widows. Stop murdering the innocent. So he's in here and he's telling them, this is actually the reason that Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Because you and your king aren't righteous. You're actually doing all of these horrible things. And that means the city is going to be destroyed and the temple is going to be destroyed. And in fact, if you resist, there's going to be no hope for you or for any of the people. You have to submit yourself now to this foreign king. And this is so brutal for us because when we recognize what's going on here, we start to see that every political and economic system that humanity rises up, that we create, ends up failing us. Everyone, every political, every economic system that we create, that mankind creates, is flawed at its core. And it will end up doing all of these kinds of things. He goes on to say, just a, a few verses later, he says, the Lord says, what sorrow awaits Jehoiakim, who builds his palace with forced labor. He builds injustice into its walls, for he makes his neighbors work for nothing. He does not pay them for their labor. He says, I'll build a magnificent palace and huge rooms, many windows. I'll panel it throughout with fragrant cedar and paint it in a lovely red. He's redecorating the palace. There's there's incredible wealth. He even says, but you have eyes only for greed and dishonesty. You murder the innocent. You oppress the ruthless. I warned you when you were prosperous, but you replied, don't 
bother me. Check that out. This is what they're doing. I am, this is, you're, you're, it's injustice. You're not giving people what, what, they, what they deserve. You're not paying them fair wages. You're doing all of this for you. You're getting richer. They're getting poorer. Income, economic, income inequality is spreading. It's getting worse and worse and worse. You, you murder the innocent. He's talking uh, you know, about, about killing the, the weak, the children. This is uh, in our day and age. We can see this in abortion. We can see this oppressing the poor, reigning ruthlessly. I warned you when you were prosperous. He's talking to the prosperous people of God. But you replied, don't bother me. Don't bother me. You take a look at something like this and you go, anytime humanity builds systems, economic and political systems, this is what we do. We, we, we create systems that we say are going to be for, for justice and righteousness, and they end up turning on the very people they were supposed to protect. So in a case like that, people turn to religion. They turn to their pundits. They turn to their wise people, their priests and their, and their shamans. And, and then in, in, in chapter 23, just one chapter over from that, he says, What sorrow awaits the leaders of my people, the shepherds, my sheep, for they have destroyed and scattered the very ones they were expected to care for, says the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Say to these shepherds, instead of caring for my flock and leading them to safety, you have deserted them and have driven them to destruction. Now I will pour out judgment on you for the evil you have done to them, but I will gather together the remnant of my flock from the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their own sheepfold. They will be fruitful and increase in number, and then I will appoint responsible shepherds who will care for them, and they will never be afraid again. Not a single one will be lost or missing. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is, this is 500 years before Christ was born. This is the language that Jesus used to describe himself, that not a single one would be lost. You see, there is no religious system that mankind creates that will save us from ourselves. It just simply doesn't exist. When, when you think about a passage like this, he's saying later on, he'll talk about this just a little further in chapter 23. He says, I saw the prophets of Samaria were terribly evil for they prophesied in the name of Baal. False gods, northern kingdom. You know, here in America, we have all of this diversity of religion, and sometimes Christians, we get sloppy in this. We think, oh, this is beautiful, all of these, all of these religions, all these ecumenical stuff. The false religions of the world are lies. Any religion that takes you away from Jesus is a lie. It actually is, is created by our enemy, and it is created by sinful humanity in order to have us worship the Baals. That's what it's doing. There is one hope for humanity, the hope that's found in Jesus. If we don't keep that at the center of what we do in the center of Advent, the center of hope, then what, are, what hope are we actually offering to people? Jesus himself claimed that he was the only way. Yahweh says there is only one way. What are we offering people if we're not offering them that? He says they commit adultery. He's talking about their own prophets. They love dishonesty. They encourage those who are doing evil so that no one turns away from their own sins. My friends, if we're ever getting to this point where we are, we are merging the values of this world with Christianity, that's what Israel was doing. They were syncretizing the, the values of the world. If we ever do that, we are of all people to be pitied. 
Because we have the truth and we have corrupted the truth. It's not even like, like we, we never knew it one day and then, and then one day we found it. But now we actually have taken it and we've actually corrupted the truth that we were given. This is what he's saying. Your own prophets, adultery. This is probably more so about false religion, but we know where that goes so quickly. And, and dishonesty. But, but to encourage people to not confront the wickedness and the evil that presents itself in this day, the injustices. I think when, when, when you recognize what it is that the Bible calls justice and what it means for us as followers of Jesus to do these things, it looks very different from what modern American Christianity is looking like. Where is the hope in that? You know, we get all wrapped up in our political system. It's capitalism or it's socialism. And, you know, we make this an idol for ourselves. It's, we're, we're taking values of this world, we're blending them with Christianity. It's a hybrid and it's perverse. We think, oh no, but this is the way it ought to be. Freedom. We, we, we promoted freedom at such a high level that it has become ludicrous in what we think we are right to do and free to do in this world. It has become a mockery of itself. See, every system that we create does this. Hard work, Puritan work ethic. We're driving the next generation insane with the amount of achievement and pressure that we are forcing them. Everyone is talking about it, and no one is actually fixing it. The schools know it. They researched it. They have all of the studies showing that we're destroying the next generation with all of this obsessive achievement and, and drive to get into these schools that aren't actually going to do the thing that they promised them and give them the life that isn't going to give them. And all of a sudden, we're like, no, but this is the way it has to be. Even within the church, we still have, we're letting these values seep in. We're not standing against it. I look at these things and I think this is what the prophet, this is why he was so, Jeremiah, he was sad. His book is depressing. That's the main book, Jeremiah. He wrote a second book. You know what the name of it is? Lamentations. This dude was sad. He was wrecked. In fact, he, he wrestled with his own depression and despondency. He wanted, he wanted to die at some point. Like, this, this guy was serious. This was a major. And how could you not be when you look at it? You go, everything we do turns to dust. Everything that humanity continues to build and do turns to dust. This is so unbelievably heartbreaking. And then he gives us this little promise. It's a beautiful, tiny, tiny little promise. He tells us, and this is, this is to, to me, this is where things start to shift. And you don't get too many of these in Jeremiah, so you really want to pay attention to it. I know it's tiny print, but it, I, I structured it like this because this is how Jeremiah actually wrote it. He wrote it in a, what they call a chiastic structure. It's, a, it's like a poetry type of a, of, a, of a way of doing things so that this part and this part relate and this part and this part relate and they're all pointing toward the middle part and it's just one of the ways that the Hebrews used language and poetry in writing and so he says what sorrow awaits the shepherds of my sheep for they have destroyed and scattered the very ones they were expected to care from this is this is key right the ones the shepherds who were supposed to be doing the work of taking care of everyone uh, that was entrusted to them are actually not. They're actually destroying them. They're eating them. They're consuming them. That's how it's said in other parts of the scriptures. Instead of caring and leading them to safety, you have deserted them and driven them to destruction. 
the leaders of the people, this is everyone, political, economic, social, these are, the, there are, these are their political pundits, this is Fox News and CNN. Like this is all of this thing mixed up all together. It's all of the, the, the TikTokers that you think, you know, that we, we scroll and we're like, oh, these are the people that we should be listening to. These are the influencers of our day. You say, all of you people, the shepherds, you're leaving, leading the people. You've deserted them. You've driven them to destruction. And then God comes in, Yahweh comes in, and he says, I will gather together the remnant of my flock. So he's sheep, sheep, flock, it's right here. The countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their own sheepfold, and they will be fruitful and increase in number. This phrase right here comes right out of Genesis. This is Garden of Eden kind of language. He's saying, no, no, we're going to be restoring something that we've lost a very, very long time ago. We're going back to it. The shepherds here, what we have created isn't going to do it. It isn't going to make it. It isn't going to work. But I will gather together the remnant of my flock from the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their own sheepfold. They will be fruitful and increase in number like they were meant to at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden before sin broke humanity. Then I, Yahweh, will appoint responsible shepherds who will care for them, and they will never be afraid again. Not a single one will be lost or missing. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so look what happens. He's saying, this is what the shepherds did, but I will, I will bring, then I will appoint. Yahweh is saying, listen, the time is coming when I'm taking charge. I'm going to bring in a whole new set of shepherds. I'm going to bring in a whole new set of folks who are actually going to do the work that I had originally called them to do. And at first you look at that and you go, that's great, but we still have the problem that the shepherds that you're bringing in are still us. And this is where Advent promise kicks in. It's the same thing, interestingly. He uses another chiastic structure, just like the one before it. He says, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who with wisdom succeeds. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and secure. And this will be his name, the Lord is our righteousness. And so what's so neat here is he's talking here about this is the, the I will, Yahweh is going to do this, right? And this is Yahweh down here. And then here he talks about the king. He will be a king. And in his days, this is the king's days. And so it's Yahweh and his king and what that king is going to do just and right. For all of the heartache that we are experiencing, for all of the brokenness we see around the world, for all of the tears the mourning, the, the sorrow, all of this, God says, a day is coming and it will be filled with justice and righteousness. I myself will put a king on the throne. King Jesus, Messiah, just and right throughout the land. And then he gets to this curious little thing. It's the name by which we will call this promised Messiah, the Lord is our righteousness. And why this is so cool is it's kind of a pun that Jeremiah is, is doing here. Zedekiah, the king that, that this was being written under his rule, Zedekiah, the king that was being warned that Nebuchadnezzar was on his way, Zedekiah's name is made up of two words, compound, Yahweh and righteousness. And when you translate Zedekiah's name, it means Yahweh is righteousness. And what Jeremiah does is he switches it. And he puts the words in a different order so that when you read them, it now reads his name, the other king, not this fake Zedekiah king, but the king who will actually be the one to bring real justice and real righteousness. His name reads, the Lord is our righteousness. 
It's a subtle change. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Now somehow it's not just that Yahweh is righteous, but the Lord is our righteousness. And immediately, for those who are familiar with the New Testament, you remember what this is about. Because the promise from the New Testament, this is Paul writing, and he says, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It's as if Paul was reading Jeremiah that morning before he wrote this. He's saying, this is Jesus. This is who he is. He's becoming your righteousness. And we say, yeah, but, but we still have the problem. Like, we're actually not righteous. And he says, yes, but you, you are becoming righteous because, in fact, God is going to give you the righteousness of Jesus. You are actually, he is our righteousness in a very real way. He's actually going into the heart and he's giving us a new heart and he's giving us his righteousness and he is declaring us righteous and he is enabling us to be righteous and he is filling us with the spirit so that we can be righteous, so that we can do the justice and the righteousness that God originally intended for humanity and for his people to do to represent him in this world. And so Jesus, he comes on the scene, he grabs another prophecy out of Isaiah 61 and he says, guys, listen, from Ash comes beauty. I'm going to do all of these things, this whole prophecy, all of these promises. This is Jesus himself. He, he gets in front of the synagogue. He unrolls a scroll and he says, all of these things, all of these promises, they were about me. I am the good shepherd. You are the under shepherds. You are the ones who will now be used by God to do this great thing. I look at these passages and, and, and I think to myself, they were all so woven together over the course of hundreds, thousands of years. Jesus crashes on the scene and he goes, this is what we were talking about all along, guys. The advent, the anticipation. This was the moment. This was the hug. The little girl walks in, she gives us a hug. Jesus, he's born. He, he gives us this hug and he says, listen, not only was this the hug that you were waiting for, but it's actually a promissory note of another hug. Because the prophets actually spoke of two advents. The first advent came at the first coming of Christ. That's where we got his righteousness. Because of the sacrifice of Christ on the church. If you have not ever decided to trust your future with Jesus, you're not a follower of his yet. You're not, a, you're not a Christian if you haven't said, I want the righteousness of Christ given to me. I want my sin forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. That was the first advent. You want to talk about the warmest of possible divine hugs. It's when Jesus comes in and he says, listen, I am going to take your sin on me and I'm going to give you my righteousness. Yahweh is our righteousness. This is the biggest, most hopeful moment that humanity had ever seen because now he's doing a different kind of thing. It's a new covenant. It's a new work. And then he goes on to tell us that there's actually going to come a day where that righteousness is going to be manifest over the whole of the world. There is a second advent coming. It is the advent of the new heaven and of the new earth. He says, actually, Jeremiah kept saying it. He says, in that day, but there are two days they talk about. And we are now awaiting that second day. And so here we are in the midst of all this heartache and in all of this frustration and all of this despair. And we keep putting our hope in all of the wrong things and we keep working toward the wrong things. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, in that day. And so now we get to wait with hopeful anticipation. 
And as we sit and as we wait, we get to go back to the original promise and realize that what he is calling us to do is to bow our knee to the king. There's a reason the language of, of king is used, of royalty, and why this is King David. You see, you want to understand why it's all broken. It's because we refuse to bow the knee. You know, I just mentioned, I said, maybe you're not a Christian here today. Maybe you haven't, you know, you haven't accepted Christ. But it, it's also a matter of rebellion. You're refusing to accept King Jesus. For those of you who decided, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do my church thing, but I'm not really going to get all in, that's because you're refusing to bow to King Jesus. If you say, yeah, I like this part of it, but I don't like this part of it, you don't get to decide that. The king does. That's, that's part of the beauty of the, the freedom of this whole thing. It's the king. He is King Jesus, and he's saying, I've already come. The prophet said it. I proved it. Guess what the prophets say? I'm coming back. And when I come back, every knee will bow. You can bow it now willingly, joyfully, and receive all of that beauty and benefit that comes with it, or you can be like many before who have refused to bow the knee. And God raises up Babylon, and he raises up Nebuchadnezzar, and he comes and destroys the whole of them, tearing down the city, destroying Solomon's temple, snuffing out hope because they refuse to bow the knee. I look at this and I think this is so exactly what we need. There is a power. There is an authority. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a, he was a excellent, amazing, deep thinker. He was around the time of, of uh, Nazi Germany. He was, he, he, we've quoted from him a number of times here. Uh, brilliant, brilliant theologian. Anyway, he also was involved in a plot to kill Hitler. And so kudos, but he ended up in prison and ended up executed. But while he was in prison, it was around Advent time. And he said, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Think about this for here a moment. What we try to do is we're trying to open the door ourselves all the time. We're going to do it with our own ingenuity, with our own education, with our own values. We're going to do it. We're going to force this door open. We're going to break it down. We're going to show everyone what we got. We're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And if you've got that whole heart and attitude, it, maybe it's going to help you do some great and cool things in the world, but it's going to actually risk pulling you away from the very thing that we need to do, which is we need to depend upon someone else to open up this prison door. This is why whatever humanity puts their hand to, we corrupt and we ruin because we actually haven't submitted ourselves to the very authority of the king. Advent means such great things, such hopeful things, and it also means that the king is coming. Are we ready for when the king shows up? Have we submitted ourselves? Have we bowed our knees? Have we, have we bowed our hearts? Have we celebrated when he himself takes that doorknob and opens up that prison door? I came across a poem to talk that talked about um, this idea of Advent. And she writes, the season of Advent means there is something on the horizon, the likes of which we have never seen before. What is possible is not to see it, to miss it, to turn just as it brushes past you. And you begin to grasp what it is that you missed, like Moses in the cleft of the rock watching God fade in the distance. She's saying, this is a season where we can so 
easily miss what God is doing. We get into our busyness and we get into our crazy. We're just trying to make it. We're just trying to survive. We're just trying to get through the holidays. We're just hoping for next year. We're just doing this. And we're like, oh my goodness, I just hope. hope." It's so easy to miss it. If we don't take the time to stop and to reflect and to let God speak to us, if we don't get to, to spend some time with the true shepherd, with the coming king, we will miss it. She goes on to say, so stay, sit, linger, tarry, ponder, wait, behold, wonder. There will be enough time for running, for rushing, for worrying, for pushing. For now, stay, wait, because something is on the horizon. Would you pray with me? Lord, what we're asking for is that during this Advent season, that we would carve out the space to submit our hearts to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords. Father, that we would allow you during this Advent, when we are preparing our hearts for your arrival, it reminds us that you are coming again. There are two Advents. And Father, what we want is for this season, Lord, not to just go by in the rush of Christmas activity and busyness and and things that we have to do, deadlines and debt. But instead, Lord, that we would that we would see this time, this month, this season. Father, we would use this, this time for prayer, this devotional to encourage our heart, your, the prophetic word from your scriptures. Father, we would pull in all of these resources and ideas and thoughts and we would sit with you, that we would rest in you, that we would bow our hearts, our rebellious ways, Lord, so that we might be made into the, the shepherds of your people, that we might be made into the, the, to the women and the men filled with justice and righteousness that can bring true hope and healing to a world here right now that desperately needs it. Father, we want to be these people more and more, not wrapped up in our own thing, but thinking about the work that you have for us so that we might take and expand your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let us do that, Lord, more and more. We pray it in Christ's name. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.